Be seated. As we uh, conclude our series on the gospel of God from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 today, I want to begin by saying that I hope a lot of you have participated in the scripture memory challenge of this fall. These are cards that we had printed in here on the first day of the series in September, and there are still many of them at the back, so it's not too late for you to grab one on your way out and consider it your challenge for this day to memorize these two sections from this, uh, this, the opening verses of Romans that are on this card with your family at home, perhaps this afternoon, with your, your friends, your roommates. Um, and I think you'll be deeply encouraged as you do so. Memorizing uh, scripture is so valuable. Remember how Jesus responds to the temptations in the wilderness, right? He quotes scripture back to the devil himself as his means of overcoming temptation. And we're also in the wilderness on our way to the promised land, and we face temptation and trial regularly. We need the word of God deeply rooted in us. The psalmist says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So grab a card, put this to memory today, these verses to memory, and I think you'll be encouraged. In this series, we've looked at the source of the gospel, which is God. We've looked at the content of the gospel, Jesus is Lord. We've looked at the results of the gospel, which are, in a broad sense, the transformed lives of you and me and many others, countless others throughout the world and throughout history. And today, as we turn to verses 16 and 17, we come to the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Now, this has been implicit as we've looked at the results of the gospel, because we all know there's no way that our lives can be transformed outside of the power of God. It's God's power that transforms us and that brings about the results of the gospel. But what has been implicit for the last five uh, sermons in this series is now coming to the foreground and being made explicit as we get to verse 16. Remember what Paul has said to the church in Rome in verse 15. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's eager to come and to preach the gospel to the church in Rome. And then he gives his reasons in verses 16 and 17, our text for this morning. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in light of this text, we're going to consider three things. First, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Second, that this power is for everyone who believes. And third, in light of these realities, we'll come to the opening words of verse 16. Paul is therefore not ashamed of the gospel. So first, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's what Paul says in the middle of verse 16. It is the power of God for salvation, he says. So let's think about salvation for a moment. And perhaps the best way to do this is to go back to the great story of salvation in the Old Testament, which is the rescue of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. You might remember when they are in a pretty bad predicament. They're, they've left uh, Pharaoh and his people. They've started to march away and they've come to the sea. And there's no way through the sea. And then they realize that on the other side of them is Pharaoh's approaching army, the superpower of his day. 
And this is what Moses says in verse 13 of Exodus 14. Fear not, stand firm. I mean, by the way, that's a lot to say to people when an army is kind of approaching on you and there's a sea on one side. We just kind of let it roll off of our tongue. But fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. They were caught in this difficult place. And they were doomed, quite honestly, in their own strength. But God intervenes. And God saves them. So when Moses sings his song after the great miraculous deliverance, he parts the sea and then he drowns Pharaoh's army. Moses sings a song that's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 15. He begins in this way. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He's delivered us. Salvation is a word that connotes deliverance by God from a predicament in which we find ourselves. As they're at the edge of the promised land many years later, about to go in, Moses is about to die, and in the book of Deuteronomy, which is his last word, his speeches to the people of God, as we read in Deuteronomy 4, he reminds them that, you know, what great God has brought you out of Egypt with his own presence, by his great power, driving out before you uh, nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in. This is the salvation of God. You know, we love stories of deliverance. We're captivated by rescue stories. I'm sure most of you will remember three and a half years ago when the world was captivated by the story of the soccer team, those 12 boys and their assistant coach in Thailand who had gone after a practice on June 23rd, 2018 to explore the Tom Luang Caves, which they were quite familiar with. The only problem was it had been raining for several days just before. It was just before monsoon season, so I think they thought they were safe, but there had been quite a bit of, of rain. And as they were going back into the system of the cave, they were, they were over a mile and a half in, and they realized that they were trapped. The water had risen, and, the, and they couldn't get out. And we all found out about that, and so the press, the international press, was there at the base of the cave system reporting on this day by day. And then miraculously, nine days into the ordeal, two divers made contact with all 13 of them in the cave. And then it took another week or so to plan and put the best minds together. You might remember even Elon Musk tried to get involved and build a submarine for the kids. That didn't work. Um, but they used divers, and then they developed the system with ropes, and, and, and they were able to extract all 13, uh, the 12 boys and the assistant coach. And we all just watched with awe. We love to see rescues. That was a successful rescue. There are a lot of unsuccessful and failed rescues as well. I was recently reading about a tragic car crash that took place in Las Vegas by a star wide receiver for the Las Vegas Raiders who was intoxicated and was driving his 2020 Corvette at 150 plus miles per hour at 340 in the morning and slowed down to 127 miles per hour before he ran into the back of a Toyota RAV4. And he and his girlfriend survived, but, but tragically the accident took the life of the 23-year-old female driver of the Toyota. And what caught my attention as I was reading about the story was the account of, the first eyewit of, the, of an eyewitness who was the first on scene. He had rushed up to the Toyota that had been mangled by the accident. And when he got there, the driver was still breathing, and he thought they were going to be able to get her out and to help. And they were trying to cut the seatbelt. 
And the fire was beginning to grow. And, and he said, we just realized that she was pinned and trapped between the airbags and the metal of the frame of the car. And there was nothing we could do. And so he and another person on the scene had to back off as the fire consumed the car and with it the woman as well. And she passed away tragically in that fire. A rescue attempt that was oh so close but didn't work. Salvation is deliverance. It is rescue. And it's rescue from a particular predicament. And in both of these stories of rescue from our world, life and death was hanging in the balance and those trapped could not contribute to their own deliverance, could they? They had to be rescued from someone else. And the biblical perspective on our predicament is that we are in a similar situation. Like the Israelites, we are trapped between the approaching Egyptian army and the Red Sea. Or like the boys in their coach, we are trapped in the cave and the waters are too high. Or like the woman in that tragic car crash, we are trapped in a car and can't get out. And we need rescue. Our entrapment, of course, is not physical. It is spiritual. We have rebelled against our creator. We've turned each one of us to his own way. And we've come under the curse of death. And we cannot get ourselves out. Athanasius, one of the church fathers in the fourth century, wrote this. The law of death, which followed from the transgression, prevailed upon us. And from it, there was no escape. We couldn't get out. But God intervened. God made a way where there was no way. The gospel, this good news of the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and that this Lord has saved and is continuing to save his people. This, Paul says, is the power of God for salvation. At the cross, Jesus defeats the powers of death and the devil and he binds the strong man. This is language from Mark chapter 3. He binds the strong man so that he now, now he might plunder his goods or plunder his house. And his, his method of victory, his method of deliverance, his method of dealing with our enemies that held us in bondage that we could not escape from was so bizarre that no one could think it up. He would go and die on a Roman cross. And through that death, he would defeat death. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This gospel is the power of God for salvation. That death was a victory. And that victory was clearly demonstrated through the resurrection that took place three days later. And the gospel that we proclaim declares God's power over sin and death itself. God's power to save. God's power to rescue us from a burning car or a sealed up cave. God's power to liberate us from the clutches of insecurity and unforgiveness and anger and bitterness and exhausting work and futility and even the efforts of creating and sustaining our own identity which promise liberation in our culture today, but only bring enslavement. In the words of one commentator, quote, the gospel manifests God's death-defeating, curse-reversing, evil-vanquishing, devil-crushing, sin-cleansing, life-giving, love-forming, people-uniting, super-uba-mega-grace power that results in salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. It's interesting if we turn to verse 17, 
When Paul says that in it the righteousness of God is revealed, he's pointing actually to this saving power and action of God again. There's actually a a parity between verses 16 and 17 in that both speak about God's work and then they speak about our response. The precise meaning of the righteousness of God is widely debated among scholars. And the phrase likely has a range of meaning even in the book of Romans. But it seems clear that this is about the attributes and actions of God that are revealed through his saving work for us in Jesus Christ. God's saving action. This action reveals his divine rescue and his power alone and it it exhibits and reveals the creator God's character, his truthfulness, his justice, his faithfulness, faithfulness to Israel and his faithfulness to all of creation in putting wrong things now to rights. This is what God is doing in the gospel. The saving power of God in verse 16, the righteousness of God in verse 17, these are related. And they bring about the power of God to save. And then secondly, they're meant to elicit a response of faith. If we look back at verse 16, Paul says, it is the power of God for salvation, and then he continues, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This means that this salvation is applied to anyone who believes. And to believe, again, for Paul, includes elements of cognitive assent, elements of trust, of putting our lives in the hands of another, and elements even of obedience or faithfulness as we walk under Jesus' authority as king. Paul talks about this, as we've seen in this series, as the obedience of faith among the nations in verse 5. Or think in in verse 17, it's the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith for faith. Again, another difficult phrase in this this short, densely packed text, which the rest of Romans will go on to unpack for us. But I think the New Living Translation has it well here, where it translates from faith for faith as from start to finish by faith. It is the response of faith that the righteousness of God manifest in the gospel brings about. And then Paul cites Habakkuk 2.4, that the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is highlighting in both verse 16 and in verse 17 That the work of God, his saving power, the righteousness of God that is revealed is to produce and bring about a genuine faith, a response of faith. And it's available to everyone who believes. You might notice that he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there is a sense in which he gives Jewish priority here, even in a context where he's trying to say this is universal, that everyone applies, everyone can believe. And, And that is true, even Even in the the historical sense, we think about the fact that when Jesus came and walked upon the earth, to whom did he minister? He ministered to the Jews, to his own people, to the people of God. He came and ministered among them. So there's a real sense, even just historically, that to the Jew first means that the, the gospel message came to the Jews first and to the Greeks or and to the Gentiles. But it's certainly that the primary thrust here, and Paul will deal with this theme of priority later in the book of Romans, especially in chapters 9 through 11, but the primary thrust here is that God has moved in power and everybody can respond. Everybody can respond in faith. There are no preconditions. There are no prequalifications necessary. This isn't like going to get a mortgage on your house. You don't have to bring paperwork that says that you're worthy of the bank putting that trust in you. No, God gives this gift to anyone who would come and believe. As this gospel is proclaimed throughout the world, some find their hearts strangely warmed, like Wesley long ago. 
And they believe that Jesus is Lord and that through his cross and resurrection, he has liberated human beings from the powers of sin and death. And they hear of the cross and they hear of this liberation and they respond to the royal summons to obedience by giving allegiance to the king, by bending their knee, by offering up their lives to him in service of him. They are delivered then from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, a kingdom of light and life. This power is at work in the world. It's at work. It's detailed in the the gospel content, but it's at work as the gospel is proclaimed. In 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul says that our our gospel came to you in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. It came and it transformed your life. And we know to this day that as the gospel is preached and proclaimed and lived, throughout the world, that some respond in this way, with a genuine faith. Beckett Cook had been living a life of glitz and glamour in the entertainment industry in Southern California, and particularly in Hollywood, for 15 years. He had been very successful in his work, was working on set designs for magazines like Harper's Bazaar and Vogue, and he was working on ad campaigns for Nike and Gap. He had attended the Oscars, the Emmys, and the Golden Globes, and had dinners at the homes of movie stars, and swimming in Drew Barrymore's pool, and having a private concert with Prince at one of his homes. He was living the life. But about 15 years in, he writes, the law of diminishing returns began to set in. After more than a decade of decadence, I wondered, is that all there is? He describes the onset of an overwhelming feeling of emptiness and that life, the life that he was living, couldn't sustain him anymore. And then one day, through a series of events, he found himself sitting in an evangelical church that believed the Bible and preached the gospel in the middle middle of Hollywood on September 20th, 2009. And he said that every word that was coming from the pastor's mouth was ringing true for him. He was hearing the gospel, and he realized that it really was good news. As he writes, quote, The Holy Spirit overwhelmed me. God revealed himself to me. I began bawling uncontrollably. I knew God was real. Jesus was his son. Heaven was real. The Bible was true. All in an instant. I had just met the king of the universe, Jesus, and his love is all-consuming. The idol of self had been smashed into a million pieces, and a new self took its place. This is the power of God for salvation. This gospel, as it's proclaimed and people hear, evokes a sense of faith that leads one to to yield to the king, to let go of the clamoring for a different kind or a self-made identity, and to receive the forgiveness and love of God that transforms us from the inside and then begins to work its way out in our actions in our lives. Beckett's story could be told by many of you sitting here in this sanctuary right now, that you too have met Jesus and found your lives changed and transformed by the power of the gospel, rescued and delivered from a life of futility, a life of self-seeking and self-centeredness, into a life that is beautiful and holy, marked by being a servant, defined by love. This is the power of God for salvation to everyone. There's no precondition. Everyone who believes. And for this reason, and thirdly, we go back to the beginning of verse 16. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Let's think about this for a minute. He should be. 
in the Roman Empire, power was everything. Riches and wealth were the currencies of the day. And how was power manifest in that world? It was manifest in strength and in importance. But Paul is proclaiming a message about a person he says is king. In fact, he says he is Lord. He says he is the son of God. These are words that would have been applied to the king of the day, to the emperor, to Caesar. But Paul is proclaiming the true son of God is not Caesar, but a man who was humiliated and dehumanized on a Roman cross, who had encountered death of the most excruciating and gruesome kind. And he was doing this in the midst of a Greco-Roman world where the emperor gloried in his strength. His strength was replicated in statues that were set up across every town in the empire, statues that in the words of one historian were meant to show that Caesar embodied earthly greatness. He was our hero, our king. But the hero and king and lord that Paul proclaimed was bloodied and breathless on a splintery Roman cross. This was the height of folly, the epitome of shame in Paul's day. And to some degree, it's no different in our day as well. To proclaim that the most important event that's ever taken place in the history of humankind took place on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago is still seen as folly. To proclaim that we don't just have to grope after a sense of the divine inside of us, but that God has actually made himself known clearly, unambiguously, and he did so through a human being that was born as a baby. That's astonishing. To say that to know this God requires that there be a response to his living king, Jesus, a response of faith, and that this is the only way to genuinely have true life and to know the God that, for whom we were made and for whom we long, even if we don't know it, seems insensitive in a tolerant age. And yet these are the things that we find at the heart of our gospel, that we proclaim to the world. The world sees them as folly. That Paul or anyone else, then or now, could declare that this moment on the cross was a moment of glorious triumph is an astonishing fact. Paul didn't try to hide the cross. When he walks into the town of Corinth, which was the headquarters of the provincial governor, a city that had an international reputation for glamour and wealth, had banks aplenty, it had two harbors that were teeming with economic activity and success and goods and spices from all across the known world. Paul walks into this place of high class and sophistication, and how does he behave himself? How does he carry himself? What does he want to communicate to them? He says, for I decided to know nothing among you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He came into this port city and proclaimed a crucified king. And he knew that this message was a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but he proclaimed it anyway because he says Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because this message of a cross and a resurrection that followed is the message of God's power that has the ability to unleash the brokenness in the human heart, to bring about a genuine change and transformation that none of your riches in gold, Corinth, could ever produce, that none of your worship of pagan gods in the temples that you give so much credence and sacrifice and religiosity, religiosity to could ever change anything. Of course Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He's got the remedy 
The only thing that will fix the disease of the human heart, the only thing that will liberate the enslavement of the human soul, Paul knows that he holds us not by any merit of his own. In fact, he knows from his own story that he was persecuting God. He was running the opposite direction, but God had mercy on him and showed him grace transformed him again from the inside out and Paul now goes out into the world and says I'm not ashamed of the gospel it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it has changed his life and he can't help but share it that's why to not be ashamed means to be eager as he says in verse 15 I'm eager to come to you in Rome and to preach the gospel among you I'm eager always to proclaim this message about the 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 living king of the universe who has set you free And I'm willing to pay whatever price it takes, whatever the cost may be. Imprisonment, beatings, stoning, shipwreck, sleepless nights, anxiety, and so much more. To not be ashamed of the gospel is to be willing to take upon himself the shame of the cross in his own day and to suffer for the sake of his name. And Paul leaves us that example in his life and testimony. And it's a testimony that so many down throughout the ages have left us as the church. In the Greco-Roman Empire in the second century in the town of Lyon, which is in southern France, Lyon was a proudly cosmopolitan city with a large temple complex dedicated to Augustus. And the Christians, of course, would not participate in the religious rites of the city's of the Greco-Roman Empire in those early days, and there was always the temptation of hostility and violence breaking out against them. And that hostility in Lyon in 177 AD broke out with a vengeance, a violent persecution against the Christians in that city. And many were arrested of all different classes, and they were urged by the governor to spurn Christ, to be ashamed of the gospel, and to confess their crimes, of course, which there were none. And in order to eke out confessions from some of them, they would torture others of them and do it in front of them to try to get them to confess. And there's a story that comes out of this great persecution about a slave girl named Blandina. We think she was about 15 years old. She had no social standing. In fact, she was arrested because she was arrested with her master's family, who were Christians. And they thought surely they could get a confession out of this woman who had nothing to gain, who would be uh, unfaithful in such a a deplorable circumstance. And so they let her watch others be tortured and sought to get confessions, but Blandina would never confess. Day after day, she wouldn't make the confession to save her skin. The Christians who were citizens of Rome had the dignity of being beheaded and of meeting a quick and swift end. Those who were not citizens were subject to greater measures of torture, and that was Blandina's own lot as well. Every time she was asked to to recant her faith, she would simply answer in this way, I am a Christian. Nothing wicked is done among us. And she would do this day after day, and finally her captors put her on a burning hot gridiron and burned her, took her off, threw her in her net, and then threw her in the arena where crowds jeering and watching saw her become a plaything for a maddened bull until the crowds had had so much of her torture that they pleaded with the guards to just stab her with their swords, which they did. 
Blandina was not ashamed of the gospel, for she knew that this was truly the power of God for life. Do you remember what Jesus said? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Blandina chose to give up her life in this age, that she might secure her life in the age to come. For she knew that to have Jesus was to have everything, even if it meant losing her life. It was to have everything that she could ever want. And her testimony and witness inspired countless other Christians then and still inspires us today. She was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. This is what it looks like to go back to Habakkuk 2.4, for the righteous to live by faith. You might remember that Paul, writing in Romans 8, in some of the greatest words of the New Testament, when he talks about what the way of faith looks like in a broken and dangerous world, he says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? No, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Blandina conquered that day through him who loved her. So I just want to bring this whole series to a close on this point at the beginning of verse 16 and just ask this question honestly to us. Are we ashamed of the gospel? It is true that oftentimes professing Jesus in this present world can make us feel like outcasts among all the other teenagers in our high school, among our colleagues at work, in our neighborhoods, perhaps even among our own families. But let's remember that we have found in Jesus the one power that has the power to save. To be ashamed of the gospel is to suggest that there is some other path for salvation in the world, that there's some other way to get out of the predicament that doesn't seem to have worked for all of human history. Perhaps it's science or technology or knowledge or wealth or fame, that there is something that can fix the situation that we're in besides this life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we proclaim at the heart of the gospel. And I want to say to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no other remedy There is no other deliverance. There is no other salvation. There is one name given among men by which we must be saved, and his name is Jesus, the crucified and risen king. And he has changed the world, and he has changed your life if you believe him, and he has changed my life. And he is ongoing in his ministry to change the world by his power. To live by faith is to declare boldly and graciously the truth that Jesus is Lord and that he saves. And Jesus says, this is a part of what it means to be my disciple. You might remember, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory with his Father and with uh, the glory of his Father with the holy angels. To know Jesus is to confess him as Lord and not to do so brashly, but to do so as one who has been transformed by his power from the inside out, who has been turned into a servant, a servant of God, a servant of all, and a servant of one another. 
It is to proclaim him as one who washes the feet of our enemies, as one who cares for the poor and the sick and the suffering, as one who's willing to take on danger for ourselves for the sake of the blessing of others made in the image of God, whatever their creed, whatever their behavior, whatever their practice. This is our commission in the gospel. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. It is God's power for salvation for everyone who believes. And may we serve this world as those who have found the truth that Jesus is Lord and that through him God is reconciling all things and making all things new. May we be eager to share this gospel with the world around us in word and deed. This is the gospel of God. There is no other. Let's live into it day by day. Amen. Father, we do pray that you would give us grace to walk in the power of the Spirit, to be transformed by your power, that with Paul we might not be ashamed of your gospel because we know it's the remedy for the world. Oh God, how gracious you have been to us to bring us in by faith. May others get to know this genuine joy as we proclaim your gospel, unashamed, graciously, winsomely, and boldly. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.